Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Philippians. In this session, we are looking at Philippians 4, 2 through 9, which begins a kind of loosely connected section of final commands and instructions to the church at Philippi. Oftentimes, Paul's letters have a section like this at some point in the letter, and here is where we find it in the book of Philippians. And so there'll be this section that has these loosely connected instructions and commands, and then there'll be a final section where Paul offers thanksgiving and final words about his situation before he wraps up the letter. So here we have these final commands and instructions uh, to the church and to the Christians there in Philippi, and it begins with a rather unusual uh, verse, a bit of unusual bit of instruction, really. It has instructions for two specific ladies in the Philippian church. Listen to what he says. Philippians 4 verse 2 says, I urge Euodia and Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. And so these are two specific women in the church at Philippi who uh, presumably are having some sort of disharmony, some sort of disruption that uh, Paul figures is significant enough and their influence is great enough that it has potential to harm the church. So he calls them out here at the end of the letter and urges them to live in harmony, to get along with one another, which, as we've seen as we've gone through this letter, is really one of the major things Paul wants to address by way of instruction to the church. And we saw that in Philippians chapter 2, where he really appeals them to be of the same mind, united in heart and soul, right, living together in unity. And presumably these two ladies are kind of part of the issue, and we don't know any details in that. Uh, I appreciate the thought of Moise Silva, a commentator, in noting that these two women being singled out like this and how unusual that is, it suggests to Silva that these women were well-established enough, influential enough, and mature enough to handle this sort of singling out because this letter is going to be read to the whole church. And I think there's probably some insight there from Silva for us that these aren't just you know, two women who sit on the back row, these are probably some sort of influential leadership type women in the church who Paul viewed as mature enough in Christ and influential enough in Christ that uh, they needed to get their, their whatever, their division, their disharmony figured out. And so he urges them to live in harmony in the Lord. In fact, he goes on in verse 3 and says this, Indeed, true comrade, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of Christ. Notice how these women are described. They're described as women who have shared his struggle in the cause of the gospel. And so they've been involved in his ministry. They've contributed to his ministry. They're co-workers with Paul in ministry. These are not insignificant ladies in the church. These are strong, powerful, influential women in the church who are having some sort of disagreement. Paul wants them to get along. Also notice there in verse 3 when it says, Indeed, true companion. Who's the true companion? We're not really sure. Um, It's possible that it's Epaphroditus who is sending the, uh, delivering the letter to the church, going to read the letter, but we don't really know. Somebody's particularly addressed, maybe Epaphroditus, who he wants to, to help negotiate the difference of opinion between these women, the disagreement between these women, and help them figure out how they can work together and live together in harmony. So, indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement, 
somebody else whom we don't know, who's apparently a fellow worker with Paul and Philippi, so together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. And so Paul holds these women up in high regard. He holds Clement and his other fellow workers in high regard, even says their names are written in the book of life. And so he wants this true companion, whoever that is, to help these women work together and and really help the leadership as a whole, it sounds like, or at least the influential people as a whole in the church, to, to work together in harmony, to live together in harmony. That's been really one of the major things, as we noted, that, that is his instruction in this letter. So that's the first bit of instruction, these ladies living together in harmony. Now, verses 4 through 7 is another string of instruction, loosely connected, uh, that has to do with really where your focus is and where your dependence is in the midst of the difficulties of life, in the midst of opposition from the outside, maybe some stress and tension on the inside, life not turning out the way you want. What do you rely on? What do you depend on? Verses 4 through 7 have to do with that. He says this, his first instruction is, Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And that verse, as we noted when we first heard this phrase in chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord has to do not, not just with be happy in Jesus. It has to do with make Jesus, make the Lord the thing you celebrate. Make Jesus the locus of, the centerpiece of, the hub of the thing in life where you find your joy. Because there's going to be a lot of things in life that... Um, vie for for your attention, vie for your energy, vie for your focus. What do you really rejoice in? Do you rejoice in your good looks? Do you rejoice in your success? Do you rejoice in your bank account? Paul says, put your joy in the Lord. Make the Lord the thing in which you rejoice. Make the Lord, the one in whom you place your hopes, dreams, and joys in him. So rejoice in the Lord. I'll repeat it. He says, rejoice, rejoice. And joy should be a mark of the Christian faith. In fact, in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the second one mentioned is joy. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. The Spirit himself in us and among us produces joy. Uh, Jesus said in John 15, verse 11, uh, that I, I have spoken these things about abiding in him. I've spoken these things that my joy might be in you and your joy might be overflowing. And clear back in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is my strength. What I want you to hear in all that is joy is a quality of God himself, the joy of the Lord. Jesus speaks of my joy might be in you. And these are people who lived with him and walked with him for three and a half years. I mean, if he wasn't exuding joy, how could he say that with any sort of integrity in any way that he would be believable, right? The spirit, the fruit of the spirit is joy. He produces that in him and you can't give what you don't have. So father, son, spirit are full of overflowing joy and they want to give that joy to us. That happens as we place our joy in Jesus. We choose to make Jesus the thing we rejoice in, the thing we celebrate, the thing we get excited about. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5 in this string of encouragements and exhortations says, Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. 
the word gentle, sometimes translated forbearing. It, it's the idea of being long-fused, that it takes a lot to make you angry. It's not uh, the word that's often translated gentle that means meek, uh, means uh, you know strength and a control. That's not the word we have here. We have this word that means more um, long-fused and uh, forbearing and sort of a gracious, non-retaliatory spirit um, that when you have been wronged, you don't just retaliate. You're just not quick to get angry. It's forbearing. So let your forbearing, gentle, gracious spirit be known to all men. Notice that. Not just some men, not just nice men, not just good men. All men, to everybody. The point is, to believers, to unbelievers, to people easy to get along with, people that are difficult to get along with, you be gracious, considerate, forbearing, you put up with a lot, kind-hearted to all men. Why? Because the Lord is near. And that sentence kind of hangs there, but it seems to be that's really the rationale. You don't have to be the one to set everything straight. You don't have to be the one to make everything right. You don't have to be the one to fix everybody's problems. You just trust in the Lord. You trust in the Lord. You know he's close at hand. He's got your back. He's on your side. He'll defend your cause. He'll, your future is guaranteed with him. The Lord is near. So let your gentle spirit, forbearing spirit be known to all men. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Notice that. Be anxious for nothing. Quit stressing, worrying, you know, and playing the tapes over and over again in your head about everything that could go wrong and how it's all going to turn out and how, right, like worrying and just stirring and stewing and chewing on it. Be anxious for nothing. And this echoes Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, stop being anxious for which of you buying being anxious can add a single cubit to his lifespan. And then he points out some examples from nature and how God cares for the flowers and the birds. This echoes that by saying, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. And that's not, don't worry, be happy. That's not, uh, you know, put on rose colors glasses and ignore the difficulties of life or the things that are wrong in the world. That's not his point. His point isn't to ignore the problems. His point is to trust God with the problems. And so he says, in everything, by prayer and supplication, two different words for prayer. Prayer, the word translated prayer is just a general word for communication with God. Supplication is more specifically the idea of request, making your needs known to him. So in everything, in every circumstance, in every situation, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, notice that, with thanksgiving, that we we communicate to God, we let our needs be known to God, and we do so with a thankful heart for the way God has cared for us, for who God is, and for what God has, got, has done. So we need to make sure we include thanksgiving in our praying. So, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So instead of being anxious, let God know your needs with thankful prayer. Um, that's how we deal with the difficulties of life. That's how we deal with the uncertainties of life is we let our requests be made known to God and we trust him with it. We trust that uh, whatever comes our way, God is wise and good and he'll take care of us. And so we submit our request by virtue of thankful prayer and we trust God with it. And notice the result of this. So we've been told to rejoice in the Lord We've been told to be forbearing and gentle because God is near. We've been told to let God know our needs with thankful prayer. And now notice verse 7. 
And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And in a very real sense, verse 7 is the culmination of the practices listed in verses 4 through 6. And part of the reason we don't experience the peace of God is we really don't have our life focused fully on God. We don't rejoice in Him. We don't, we don't um, respond to people graciously and forbearingly, trusting that the Lord will take care of us. We don't let our requests be made known to God with thankful prayer and trust Him to do what's best for us. And as a result, we don't experience the peace of God. And so verse 7 is in a real sense, the culmination of the spiritual practices listed in verses 4 through 6. So, if we will practice those things, the peace of God, the peace that God himself gives, the, God is the source of this peace, so the peace that God himself gives, which surpasses all comprehension, which goes beyond the kind of peace we could expect and makes sense in view of the way life typically goes, this peace surpasses all comprehension. Um, that that peace will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And that word guard is the idea of set up encampment around. Um, it, it's like, you know, a military guard stationed around it. If you will practice the spiritual practices in verses 4 through 6, then the very peace that God gives will set up a guard duty around your heart and around your mind in Christ Jesus. And so your life will be marked by a kind of peace that just other people can't make sense of because they don't have God in your life. That's the instructions to us here. Verses 8 and 9 then say this in this final string of in, uh, instructions by saying, Finally, brothers, and he lists off the kinds of things that he wants Christians to fill their mind with and to focus their mind on. Uh, because what you put into your mind is what comes out in your life. And so he wants us to fill our mind with and focus our mind on the following things. Whatever is true, true has to do with things that are in keeping with reality, things that are according to the way the world is designed to work, the way God is, the way humans are. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, like whatever things are just noble and honorable and good, whatever is right, right has to do with being just, being uh, the right thing in a given situation, things that are actually um, good and right by people and good and right for people, whatever is right, whatever is pure, meaning and not dirty, right? Not filthy, not crass and crude, but whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. These are beautiful things, right? Like pretty things and beautiful things and uh, things that are love-worthy. Whatever is of good repute means good reputation. Things that have a good reputation and have are, are good to talk about in, in mixed company, right? Good reputation. If there are thing, anything is excellence, excellence has the idea of virtuous, um, like they are things that are just good and excellent and virtuous. And if anything is worthy of praise, it's praiseworthy, it's, it's such a noble, good, wonderful thing, it deserves uh, compliments, affirmation, and praise. Look, listen to what he says, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Man, I'll tell you what, when I read that, one of the first things I recognize is, 
with modern social media, how easy it is for us to see so many things that are false, so many things that are ignoble and dishonorable, so many things that are impure and dirty and crass, so many things that are not excellent or virtuous, right? Like, man, it's easy for our minds to be filled with and focused on things contrary to what Paul says here. And Paul is calling believers, the original believers in Philippi, and us as well, to dwell on. Like, this is the stuff we... we we think about and we fill our mind with and we occupy our days with her is true things, honorable things, right things, pure things, lovely things, uh, reputable things, virtuous things, praiseworthy things. Man, we dwell on those things. So fill your mind with those things. And then he writes in verse 9, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Again, Paul has offered himself throughout the letter and it and in various other churches and in various other letters, he offers himself as a concrete living example of the gospel lived out. What does a gospel-centered life look looks like? What does a Christ-like life look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus? People need concrete examples. I need them. You need them. Uh, newer believers and younger believers need them for more mature believers. They need concrete examples. What does it look like to, to be a dad or a mom who... Uh, is following Jesus in relationship to their children or in relationship to their spouse? What does it look like as an employee to be a Christ-following employee in this place of work? And people need concrete examples. And so Paul is offering himself, finally, one more time here, the things you have learned, the things you have received, so the things he taught them, the traditions he passed on to them, the things you heard and seen in me. In other words, everything you've seen me do and how you've seen me live, what you heard me teach, the things I passed on from Jesus and the other apostles, practice these things. Don't just know them, practice them, do them, and notice the result again. And the God of peace will be with you. So in verse 7, we had the peace of God will be with you. Here we have the God of peace will be with you. That Repetition, I think, is intentional. So we get both. We get God's peace and we get uh, God himself who produces the peace when we center our mind and set our heart on Jesus himself. And so these final instructions here in this section of Philippians really sets a challenge for us to be people who really live a God word and God-centered life. Our life is focused on God. And we practice the things we are learning about God, that we practice the, the virtues we are seeing in godly people and how they organize their life and how they organize their time and how they organize their finances. We do that. And as we do that, we find that the peace of God and the God of peace is with us in life.